Welcome to the Hobcast, a weekly podcast from Hobeck Books, an independent publisher of thrillers, crime and suspense novels. Each week, we'll take you behind the scenes of what we do, the challenges and the triumphs, the bumps and troughs of building a new creative business in this pandemic world. We'll hear from the people who make all this possible, the authors, cover designers and editors, and we'll have expert insights from our guest star interviews. Nothing is off the agenda on the Hopcast from Hobeck Books, as we combine trad values and an indie spirit. And welcome to the Hopcast Book Show, show number ninety nine. Red love balloons. Yeah, that's right. Or Luft balloon. Uh, well, that's air balloons, isn't it? Oh, nine and nine six Luft. Oh, anyway, it, it, yes. <laughs> it, it wasn't. I don't think. Yeah, I don't think German Luft is is air. It's like Luftwaffe. You think I know because Lufthansa. The, the, the children often play this song in the car when they have control of the music and they play the German version. Yeah, the Nana. Well, anyway, we all know it, that song. Uh, it's about nuclear war. Wonderful. What a way to start our show, number 99. Welcome to the show. My name is Adrian Hobart. My name is Rebecca Collins. And together we run Hobeck Books, UK independent publishers of the following four genres. Suspense. Mysteries. Thrillers. And... Crime. You're very welcome to the show. Now, it's show number 99. We'll tell you about next week's guest, a very special guest for show number 100 in a few moments. But our guest this week is the wonderful Rebecca Miller, with an A. It's all in the first name, you know. <laughs> well, to an extent. You can imagine my confusion, as you will hear in the interview, when I'm talking to my the two Rebeccas of my life. You and, <laughs> for that one moment, Rebecca Miller... Uh, editor extraordinaire now four of our guests have passed through her hands uh in the past we'll talk about those later but you know only last week lucy hooft was saying how much rebecca had helped her develop as an author so why not get the person the, the woman herself onto the show and we did just like that we did <laughs> and it was terrific joining us from her home in bath and uh it was it's a terrific interview uh okay we're going to, uh, I think we'll make a splash of it now. We might as well. Our show number 100, da, which da, will be da. next week, is with multi-million selling Ellie Griffiths. Just brilliant. It is brilliant. And I have to say thank you to Ellie because we've been trying to get hold of her. She's had issues with her emails and we just weren't getting through. And so as a last minute attempt, I responded to a tweet and thinking, well, she's she's going to be busy, isn't she? So we've got a week to organise this. But no, she she sent me an email straight away and said, yep, yeah, and come on next week, anytime. Brilliant. Well, Ellie is, is absolutely one of the superstars of UK crime fiction, without any question. And we met her for the first time, even though we've been at many events where she has been. The first time we plucked up courage to talk to her was when she co-hosted the uh, Shoreham event that you remember from a few weeks ago. Fatal Shore. Uh, Fatal Shore. And so uh, she was only too happy to become our 100th podcast guest, or at least our guest for episode 100. So really excited about that. But uh, as I say, it's Rebecca Miller this week. Let's get into some news. Um, you've picked out a couple of things. I've put mine on the floor. So why don't we start with yours while I stretch well, forward and go and get the get my piece yeah, of paper. Because you, you won't like the first one because it's about TikTok. And every time we talk about TikTok, your eyes just automatically yeah. go ceilingwards. 
Yes, they do. They've gone. <laughs> so Publishers Association, they often do surveys on various things and they've done one for TikTok. They've asked 2001, seems an odd number, 2001, 16 to 25-year-olds were asked about their relationship with TikTok and BookTok. And 59% said that BookTok or book influencers on TikTok had helped them discover a passion for reading. So that's more than half. And I think that's fantastic because one thing we always conscious of is that the sort of younger generations might not have the same passion for reading books they might read you know they read mm. in short snippets and they listen to podcasts and they watch quite a lot on mm. you, know, you know platforms or whatever but do they read books well I, I wonder gives if, me hope yeah well i think there's been a sort of there have been waves of books that have promoted reading amongst teenagers and young adults Harry Potter series 20 years ago. Yes. Which... Being a very good example. And it's a perennial. And it, it's still promoting reading. And then you would say the Twilight series was another. And then possibly the the series that was made into the films, you know, um, Hunger Games. Oh, Hunger series. Games, definitely. Yeah. And the, there's another one that's similar to that, which I read them all. But, I mean, you know, whatever you think about people such as David Walliams and Julian Clary for putting pen to paper, they have been very popular and they have got people reading well certainly for for yeah younger readers to- totally but it's that transition now you you have three boys one of whom reads a lot and the other two have fallen out of love with it well, and they were passionate readers when they were younger you I tell think, me yeah so i think it's not so much they've fallen out of love with it but they just prioritize it lower than <laughs> they used to because yeah They've got other things in their lives, such as Formula One and football and golf. And, Championship manager. Yeah, so they they prioritise those pastimes over reading. So I, I hope they will pick it up again as they mature and you know have more time for reading. But my middle son, he he loves Stephen King. He loves um, John Irving as well. All the authors that I fell in love with at his age, which I love the fact that he's going through the same process as me. Yeah, it's terrific. And it's terrific. Our next story is the sort of wash up of the Simon and Schuster deal that fell through with Penguin Random House. Mm. Now we mentioned last week that they stood to uh, to make two hundred million from it, but it means the sharks are now circling, and there is a silence coming <laughs> from the other big publishers. HarperCollins and Hachette are circling but won't say whether they're going to make a bid. No. Presumably, they'd face similar antitrust legal action by the Department of Justice in the United States. And so, Ender's Analysis, who are one of the best judges of the book market in terms of, you know, the macroeconomic stuff within publishing, are suggesting that the situation might encourage venture capital or hedge funds to come in and buy Simon & Schuster because it's definitely for sale. Can I ask a question? Yes. Because I've always wondered, what is a hedge fund? <sighs> I, I, have, I, I haven't got the definition in front of me, but essentially it's, it's a lot of it's, – it's a way of investing venture capital and then normally hedge funds, what they tend to do is go and buy something that's long established and strip out the best bits. Oh, like Pretty Woman? Uh, yeah, Okay. I guess it's a bit like that. <laughs> anyway, um, so could we see Simon & Schuster in the hands of big venture capital or a hedge fund? Well, uh, let's not forget Waterstones and Barnes & Noble are owned by the same hedge fund. So in terms of the retail side of publishing, there's already that 
edifice and they're snapping up everything that is you know wobbling in the retail side of bookshops and so perhaps that same parent company might go in for for a publisher you never know you never know let's not wobble (laughs) (laughs) well maybe we should and then we get bought out and then we're all right we can make a load of money anyway that's uh that's by the by that's um that's something to watch anyway i i I think the other companies would be crazy to try and you know the publishers i'm i'm talking about try to merge again because you know pentagon random house have lost a lot of money it's had a big impact on them in the united states Shame. it is it is you've got something else to talk about yes so i always get interested in news items about arts and culture which includes books and publishing so this caught my eye so in germany the German government is putting um, the finishing touches to a new cultural initiative. And the aim is to get young people into culture again. So approximately 750,000 teenagers who are celebrating their 18th birthday during the year 2023. So uh, have I got anyone? No, mine would be 17 or 19. Um, they're going to be elig- eligible for a one-off cash gift, or it's like a voucher, of 200 euros and it has to be spent on a cultural activity of their choice. So it could be on books, but it could be on arts. It could be on museums, cinemas, theatres. Um, it doesn't matter specifically what it is, but it's got to be a cultural thing. And I love this. Can yeah. you imagine the British government doing this? No. Not in the current straightened times that we live in. Can you imagine the reaction of, for example, <coughs> Josh, my middle boy? He's, yeah. He'd be 17, so he's not quite old enough. He, if the government gave him... Uh, 160 pounds to spend on books oh he'd be so made up it's it is a wonderful thing unfortunately our country is drifting a different direction in terms of you know support for culture and well we talk about the bbc all the time you know there's a lot of people out there knocking its value you take it away you know see what's left well it feels like every every week something happens some cultural venture gets squeezed we were talking about the edinburgh festival last week weren't we yeah the edinburgh book festival yeah um but there'll be something else next week and something else the week absolutely or theater groups not being able to perform so uh the drama teacher at uh, the school that my boys go to he is also a member of a theater company and he hasn't been at the his company hasn't been able to put on any performances because he's Mm. just got no money yeah and actually you know closer to home judy judy dakin has has you know that's been her principal driving force is running her own theatre company. Yeah. So. As being a fantastic author for us and for well, Joffrey that- Books. And she's found it really hard to, to pull together the money for anything. So, yeah, it is tough in the cultural sector. And you can see it's very easy to make an argument. And there is a there is a case here, and I'm not trying to knock it, to, to say, look, if people can't heat their homes or feed themselves, why should the government be spending money on culture is an argument that you hear all the time. Generally speaking, the government should be doing a better job on all fronts, is what I would argue, and they're not. And the country is in, you know, having a lot of issues. And this is true across Europe, but Germany can find the money. Yeah, and and the French government did a similar thing, so... Anyway, uh, we'll get to Rebecca Miller very, very shortly. We ought to mention that we've got a really busy week, and we'll talk more about it after the interview coming up, because we've got two books coming out this week. Two books coming out this week. We're going to a book fair as well. Well, not a book fair, a Christmas fair. Um, I've got one day where I'm not doing any work as such because I'm out of the office. And one thing we ought to update on the news front is since we last did a podcast, 
we managed to publish Linda Huber's The Unfamily. Oh, such a relief it was too. <laughs> it took how long? Eight days from it was the, eight days, the scheduled yeah. publication date to actually finally appearing in ebook form on Amazon. And I know we've whinged about it for the last two weeks, but it has been enormously stressful for everybody concerned. We had a meeting with Linda this week. She she's really suffered. You've suffered really bad. I've tried not to get too drawn into it because we can't all go around in circles, but it's been awful. Yes, I think I've lost a few years off my life expectancy. <laughs> Possibly. You have not slept well for a long time, and this is one f- considerable factor in that. But uh, anyway, glad to say it's, 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 it's out there, and it's doing really well. It is doing well, actually. It is. I've, it, I've seen the sales figures. It's doing well. It is, that's despite its, 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 its <laughs> truncated start and difficult start in life. So that's great news. And we have two books coming out. Tell us who, who and what. Who and what? Um, so the first one is the uh, second book in the D.I. Payton series, which is called Driven by Karina Swan. So the first book was Blood Loss. Yep. Which is actually, as this podcast goes out, only 99p in ebook or 99 cents in the US. So if you haven't read the first one, get it now while it's only Go 99p. Grab Blood Loss. So dr- and driven. ahead of Driven being published on Tuesday. Yeah. So that's the first book, very exciting. And the second book is very exciting too. It's Cooking the Books by everybody in the Hobeck team. Well, not everybody, but you know what I mean. It's, the it's a multiple. Family, the team. Yeah, have, the team have, effort. Have, yeah, absolutely. And we're raising money for the Trussell Trust. And uh, yeah, we've had some gratifying sales on that too ahead of time through I know, our, through I've been our Wix website. Uh, don't forget to go to our website if you want to buy it because the, that really is the way to make the maximum impact. It's in hardback, no less. Yes, and it will get gift wrapped in Christmas paper. So I think it was Tony um, Gartland, who is the um, uh, the author behind the AJ Aberford. He had this image. He said to me, "I can see you sat in the corner wrapping presents like an elf," and it was true. That's what you do. <laughs> That's did. one of the many things you do. <laughs> I mean, this is you know <laughs> the personal touch. Uh, it's very important to us. Anyway, it's great news to have that coming out. Let's get to our interview, and then we'll talk more about what we've got coming up in the next few days. Here comes the cat, uh, Rebecca Miller. Well, you know, we have had many guests on the show uh, uh, who have paid tribute to Rebecca's input in their writing. Uh, the best-selling of them, without question, is Simon McLeave, but uh, some other guests as well have, have used her services. And Rebecca has a great background in traditional publishing, having worked for Penguin Random House at one stage, but now is freelance and bringing a lot of skill and just has really great judgment, I think, when it comes to storytelling and helping authors develop their craft. So it was a pleasure having had two of our recent guests mention the input that she's had. Here comes the cat purring away. Cat Yaff and Lucy Hooft. Cat Yaff. (laughs) Yeah, here we go. Here's our own version of Kat Yaff on the sofa. Uh, let's speak to Rebecca Miller. Well, Rebecca. Yes? As in the one here in the Hobeck Towers. <laughs> so, okay, yes. We've been meaning to get the other Rebecca, who is joining us in a minute, uh, on the show for a long time. Because so many of the authors that we've spoken to, their work has passed through their her hands i know so yes yeah, so you've been on our wish list for a while actually so it's a great honor to welcome rebecca miller to the hobcast book show <laughs> and 
I gather that bookcase behind you, it's now located in Bath. Is that right? Yes. Hello, everyone. Um, yes. Um, thank you very, both for having me um, via um, Zoom at Hobeck Towers. Um, yes, I am in Bath at the moment. Um, this is my slightly temporary office as we're going to be moving house maybe in March we'll see um we're supposed to be renovating it every time it's we never buy a period property every time we do something we get a call from the guy going are you sitting down I'm like, oh. yeah um, <laughs> so yes we're in Bath at the moment which is um very lovely it is I it like is. Bath I mean, uh, uh, it's got some great bookshops well that's yes. what I was going to say yeah. because uh you you say that within you know easy reach are six bookshops so that's an expensive uh place to live yeah um it's very risky um trying to go into town just to get some groceries and stuff and you see the walk past the lovely displays and you think "Mm, maybe i'll go have a look and see what they've got and then you come back with a half a bag and then the next time and you think um maybe i should control myself but you know there we go it's um i like to support all the local bookshops so yeah (laughs) absolutely i think that's common with anybody who works in publishing or loves reading the control isn't a doesn't feature no, no it doesn't no the smell of a new paperback or a hardback is it's just irresistible isn't it yeah <laughs> yeah when i used to work in house it was always a case of like um the the pay isn't what we want but we get paid in books so you know <laughs> yeah actually so yeah i have a question because like when yeah. i worked at oup every time we had an office move yeah. people would put all the books in the corridor for you to just pick anything you wanted so yeah. it was, i loved office moves all the oxford world classics would be in the corridor <laughs> and they'd be the first to go oh wow oh yeah we used to have um on my floor so in the print room next to the printer they used to have this ginormous bin where they used to put all the old proofs and the fire and the books that you had to get rid of um that I just didn't have the space for and obviously sitting there scanning a whole manuscript and thinking oh I'll just have a look what's in the bin and then <laughs> come home with like all these copies of books that I probably don't need but you know I mean I was living at my dad's house at the time and he was just like going you do know you're going to have to move these elsewhere at some point I was like yes <laughs> but that's point tomorrow is Rebecca's problem <laughs> That's right. Well, Rebecca Miller, thank you so much for joining us. And as I say, we I think we, we've worked through it and we've had four authors that you've edited with um, on the show. Oh, uh, you've counted. I have. And now I've got to try and recall them all. Well, Lucy Hoof. Hoof. Lucy Hoof. Simon McLeave. Simon McLeave. Uh, Kat Yaff. Yes. Morgan Green. Well, we, Oh, yes. Morgan Green as well. That's four. That's four. Uh, and all of them say wonderful things about you and the impact they've had on you've had on their careers and their writing uh particularly i mean just looking at simon mccleaves again mm. and uh you know he was saying that he'd been a screenwriter as, as we you know talked about on the episode that he appeared in uh and that had created a few issues from the perspective of writing a novel particularly head hopping and uh you had to, i think you probably had to, <laughs> had to be f- firm but fair with him is that is that correct um i'd say that um working with screen writers is brilliant because they have that sort of visual mind in their head where they see they can see the screenshots but they also um sometimes it's harder for them to get into that sort of filtered close um perspective because you can't really well sometimes you you can be inside some authors um some characters heads um 
on the television, but most of the time you're obviously by the nature of the media, a step removed. Um, so you have that sort of omniscience in a way, because as the watcher slash reader, um, you know more than sometimes more of the characters do. And he chose to write in a close filtered um, perspective. So having to step away from that, I know everything perspective and getting back in and really getting inside the author's head, um, not author, reader's head, no character's head um even um is something that's quite hard to get out the habit of doing yeah and and it's always a difficult conversation to have isn't it i mean i i, I imagine uh, you've dealt with a lot of authors but when you see something that is quite as you know if you if you can't see it when you're writing it mm. then uh to be shown that there's an issue here can't be easy to pass that message on can it um no, I mean, it's part of my, I think my job as an editor, I define it as your friend that you want to be brutally honest with you, but tell you in the nice way. So like when you go into the restaurant and you've got a bit of stuff in your teeth, you want to be told <laughs> yeah. um, as opposed to just walking around with the stuff in your teeth the entire time. So that's kind of how I take it that we, I will, I, my per approach is honest and it's kind of critical um, suggestions and obviously, as an author, it's up to you whether you take those on board or not. But um, it's what I, and it's also just one particular personal opinion, but you have to be delicate in how you put it. But my the whole point is that my best intention is that I want to make help you make your manuscript the best it could possibly be. So it's kind of how you can push your their author's work to be as best as the best that it can be. Mm. So it's everything I'm suggesting is that way inclined I'm not I'm not saying anything to be like oh I just don't like that or you know some some authors have worry that they um editors are going to shape a book into how the editor sees it as opposed to how they want to see it and um and I think that's really important to kind of get across that no it's about helping you write your story Absolutely. Yeah, and also like you say they don't have to take on board everything you suggest you know at the end of the day it's up to them mm -hmm. but I quite like it as an editor I like it when they say do you know what you're right yeah. <laughs> that, that, that is very rewarding when you think of, yes yes I thought so but <laughs> yeah yeah that I mean it's interesting because Kat was saying Kat Yaff um two or three weeks ago was saying exactly that, that you know the 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 pleasure of working with you was to get so many suggestions and options back mm. uh, uh, for her to to pick from and to to, to work through. So um, I always found, I mean, you say on your uh, your website about finding the right language to pass on what on the face value can be quite a fundamental point and, uh, you know, incur for an author quite a bit of work mm. uh but finding the positive language in which to express that and i must admit that in the past when i was at the bbc mm. i used to try and do that but i can't say i was always 100 percent successful as a manager in passing on the criticism <laughs> stuff. i think it is a skill um, in itself isn't it yeah, yeah it's a skill. i think this is going to self. i mean i've not had anyone come back going oh that was a bit brutal oh <laughs> i imagine sometimes like with my authors who i'm quite close with and do repeated work you'll there will be certain phrases that they'll pick up and i'll be like uh it'll be just they'll just be the, the ellipses and the question mark in the comments like oh I know what she's trying to say um <laughs> that sort of thing and you kind of when you build up that rapport obviously there's a different um level of um formality with that 
Um, so yes, but I do try, it's um, all about finding that balance of, you don't want to be, the whole point is that author, authors have come to me because they want me to help them improve their manuscript. So there's no point in me saying, well, this is all brilliant because that's just a kind of, it's, an ego stroking exercise isn't gonna help anyone. Um, and so that's kind of how I pitch it in a way that it might, editing can be painful because obviously you're um, being invited to work on something that's often incredibly intimate to that author because obviously it's their, the inner workings of their mind made laid bare on the page. So I think it's, it's an author, um, an editor's privilege to work with that. And so you have to bear that in mind when you approach it. Um, but you still have to be honest and uh, offer helpful advice because otherwise you're not doing your job. <laughs> no, indeed. Yeah, that's what they're paying you for. So. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Let's take people through your career, if we may. So yeah. you, you started in, in traditional publishing yeah. uh, at one point with Pan Penguin Random House uh, and working with some quite stellar names as, as a result <laughs> of that uh, and quite a range of, of different types of, of title as well. Hmm. Um, what was that like working within the, because, you know, we sit here in the indie sphere in the, you know, the two persons sitting at the kitchen table, sitting at the kitchen table with our laptops, <laughs> yeah. um, fighting the good fight. Uh, and there's Penguin Random House sitting at the top of the tree, yeah. uh, this huge edifice uh, with, with able to make office moves um, <laughs> separate from house moves. <laughs> but uh, what, what, what's, what was that like to go into um, early on in your career? Um, I think to this day, I still um, kind of pinch myself. I actually managed to do it because um, <laughs> I started off. Um, so I didn't my first actual job was at a um, self-publishing provider um, services provider um, before then. And then before after that, I thought a job came up at Penguin Random House. And I thought, OK, I'll have a go. Thousands of applicants, blah, blah, blah. And I um, yeah, so I did that. And I thought I was so nervous that I actually tried to leave the interview via the window. Um, <laughs> the opposite way. And to some match, I know, to this day, it still haunts me. Just the looks of their face going uh, the other way. I'm like, oh, God. Um, but somehow they still, they thought, well, they thought, well, obviously, this is the kind of girl we need. Um, and so, they, so, yeah, I started there. And then working in a big publisher like that is, um, is amazing because of the access you kind of have to, how to like the names to the resources and that kind of that um reach that you don't have necessarily as an as an india publisher but also i think you sometimes you lose that kind of personal touch in a way because you do have big big lists that you have lots of different authors that you're working on and you don't have that same um connection as i do at the moment with my as at freelance because obviously it's just mostly one-on-one -on -one and i work on one project at a time but where's Whereas when you're in a big house, you're kind of thinking, right, I've got to balance all these different authors. But obviously you have the author has to think that you are their author. They are you are working solely on their project. Um, sorry, guys. Um, <laughs> yes. Yeah, so it's um, yes. Um, so it's um, it also very amazing and also scary when you get people like I mean, famous people that come and work off like off the telly and all that stuff coming into your <laughs> studio like um into the how, how about random house so obviously I worked on an imprint that did a lot of um celebrity memoirs and that sort of thing so we yeah. have um big names coming in and you just be um one of the other imprints worked on um Tom Hanks and we all just got a message saying meet us down in the lunch in the um 
in the canteen and there was Tom Hanks and you're like oh my god <laughs> so it's um it's uh pretty cool but also very kind of um uh, of course yeah um it's pretty cool full stop pretty cool <laughs> yeah I remember I remember that so the most famous person I worked with at OUP yeah. was Margaret Drabble and we had the same mm. excitement when we heard that Margaret Drabble yeah. was walking down the corridor was that yeah. Chamomile Lawn Margaret Drabble no, no. that's um who's that Mar- Lawn. what's oh gosh <laughs> what did Margaret Drabble Margaret do? Drabble did the well she was the Oxford's companion to English literature but oh sorry her sister yeah. is a, a better known writer ah okay I've forgotten the name now. We've got a book on <laughs> Oh, God, we've gone down a rabbit hole. I'm so sorry. I was going to ask, I mean, because, I mean, you know, yeah. a, a, a company like Penguin Round the House. They yes, buy it. They yes, buy it. That's it, Thank yeah. It has quite a lot of churn in terms of new people coming in all the time. Uh, so culturally, how easy is it to fit in there? Because I, I'm very conscious of when I was running, you know, a department at the BBC, just how difficult it sometimes was to adapt to uh, for that first couple of years. And it certainly was for me when I joined um, the, you know, catching up with what you need to know and that feeling of not quite imposter syndrome, but always being <laughs> and quite unsure of yourself. Mm-hmm. What's it like at someone like Penguin Random House for that sort of thing? Um, I think we're all like, because it's, we have um, the imprints that are sort of almost like yeah. family way. And so you do get supported quite well in that sort of aspect. Um, it is the nature of publishing that you kind of, there is quite a high turnover because, um, oh, which is, a, I don't really know why. I think it's probably because there's so few jobs. So lots of people, when they reach for their next one, they're like, right, jump, jump, jump. You haven't got a time to kind of... Um, settle in that way but it also gives you a um a very strong apprenticeship because you're basically thrown in and you're like right hit the ground running and you're very thankful when your predecessor has left lots of nice handover notes um (laughs) to guide you through and I think all the obviously you have the um all the kind of the assistants and the editors and then the MDs and they kind of all work together and filter down and there's a great sense of camaraderie when you're working on that particular book because you all want that book to do well and so you all kind of work together with that goal in mind and um and because we also all love books so we all (laughs) think right we all want to make this work and we're going to do the best we possibly can because we love this author and we want this story to do well so yes it's kind of yeah you have that sort of you do have the imposter syndrome though too I mean especially when I first started and so I first started on non-fiction and I kind of did narrative non-fiction and then I really wanted to do um, a lot of fiction as well which is what I knew more as a as an avid fiction reader so when I was working on non-fiction I remember the first thing my manager said I think I just sat down on the first day and she'd handed me um, uh, so their autobiography that were making into paperback. Um, I'd heard of the person who it was, but I was also, I don't really know them that well. And he said, right, your first, um, the thing that every editor needs to be able to do is to write a blurb for a book, having not read the book. I'm like, <laughs> okay. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And having just left uni and right, right, thinking, right, ready, I'm going to be able to do this, have this vision, you know, the sort of old publishing school of like um, offices filled with books and long lunches. And that's like, that's died a long time ago, <laughs> that idea. But um, you just have that image, you're slightly romanticised image and then you're thinking, OK, right, now I have to come up with something that I haven't read and then hope I can kind of make it sound good. Um, so you learn fast. Is the mm. way I think is the learn fast. 
Yeah, yeah, you do. I mean, in any of these industries now, you have to. You're yeah. absolutely right. Um, which, I mean, when you were there, or in fact, any part of that early part of your career, what was the best advice you were ever given? Do you think? Oh, best advice I was ever given. Ooh, I mean, that one was quite good. <laughs> um, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Learn how to, yeah, learn how to write. Um, but I'm trying to think. Um, because Rebecca, you, you Rebecca here. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you've you've often quoted yeah so we, we actually touched on this earlier my boss said to me she said you just need to make sure that the author you're speaking to at that time is the center of your universe mm. and if you do that to all of them they'll all be happy yeah <laughs> I, I still think, do I that, that really you try yeah no, I think that's a I think that's a um a great maxim and and a great idea to kind of follow through if you work in publishing especially um if you do have lots of authors because obviously their work is so important to them and it should be because they've worked so hard on it and you want yeah. to make sure you give them that attention and that detail they do know that you do have other authors but they they want to feel special too and mm. you want them to feel special and they are special to you because they're your authors um and you love them to bits um so I do agree that 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 is some very strong and very wise advice I think I have been given at some point I just can't remember <laughs> <laughs> So that's yeah, so that's you get you get told lots of things and um yeah I think and that's another one. It was I think another one was always have a, always have a party dress in your in your office because you never <laughs> know when there's spontaneous drinks in publishing. Um <laughs> <laughs> brilliant. Yeah, well there's never never any of those here, that's for sure. <laughs> what would you do for our Christmas do if it's just two of us? Um that's a very good question. Address and yeah. drink, you know, right. Prosecco. Yeah, and I want to use the mistletoe, but isn't oh. it tradition for someone to, you know, do something embarrassing while at a Christmas party? And kissing you is not embarrassing. Well, no, but you could dance naked on the table. I could kiss the cat or something. <laughs> anyway, we, we digress. Yes. I'm just going to move on to um, your freelance career, mm. and so that transition moving out of the 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 traditional publishing scene and, and becoming establishing yourself as a freelance how difficult was that um it was quite um initially it was quite scary um because working in publishing and had this uh, I'd always wanted to work in publishing I always wanted to be an editor and kind of work in like one of the big um publishing houses and and then I thought well the, it came about because my partner um my fiance boyfriend at the time um was got a job offer in Australia and it was kind of like well well blah, the <laughs> mm. and my mum my mother's advice in here going never give up your job for a man um <laughs> for like an all-girls school thinking oh I shouldn't do this but I'm thinking it was also at a time where I was slightly transitioning from not wanting to work necessarily in non-fiction so much anymore and wanted to move into um fiction where my passion lies and I thought well this placement is only going to be for a year um I mean at the time we didn't know where it was going to be as for oh they have Penguin Random House in Australia maybe they'll have a space <laughs> to be there maybe I can sabbatical over there thinking okay so I thought I'd have a go and obviously my partner chose the one city in Australia that has literally no publishing um so we went to Adelaide which is lovely and a very a very bougie and then lovely but there's literally no publishing um so I thought right I'll have a go I'll try and set up freelance and um even if it was just for a year I thought okay I'll have a go and then I found I absolutely loved it I'm quite um so like a past life I used to be a wedding photographer um and really? 
yeah so I'm quite entrepreneurial in that sort of way I quite like working for myself and having that motivation to to um uh kind of follow my dreams in that sort of way so I thought you know I'll have a go and four years down the line here we are um <laughs> chatting to you guys um I'd call that success um <laughs> um <Very> so, <laughs> yeah, it's, <laughs> so it's kind of um yeah it's it, um it was scary and I would say um a big shift having to think right now I have to organize I have to find my own job I'm not going to get paid if I don't find the business etc so yeah. having that sort of businessy aspect to it is um uh it can be but it could be it can be a distraction because I do love working on the manuscripts but obviously you've got to do that to be able to work on the manuscripts so <laughs> yeah no that is I mean it was, I mean we all wear many hats when we go freelance um, oh totally I mean your experience of that um you know um Ms. Collins uh, here uh, because you know you've done that for many years but I had a total culture shock leaving somewhere like um, the BBC and then fighting for for the business Um, it's quite different but um, uh, it's interesting that what 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 is it about the freelancing and the I suppose is it the variety that 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 attracts you is it the the, or is it the quality of people that you're, you're dealing with I think it's the ability to actually work on text a lot more because when mm. you're in house, you do a lot of it. You are basically pitching to your senior people saying, this is why we should um, publish this. And so there's a lot of um, kind of admin and stuff behind that. And there's less actual work on the text, which is what I really enjoy doing. But I also think freelance offers a kind of um unique window especially when you work with indie authors because you are wearing multiple hats within your own business and obviously as an indie author you are essentially a publishing house and so you have that uh, insight into how they're juggling all their different hats of how they want to they want to write their manuscripts but they also have to work on their marketing they also have to work on their um um, administration how to get the books out advertising etc covers all of it which you would see inside Penguin Random House covered by, I don't know, 25, 30 people. And then you think indie authors are just doing it once. And so obviously you have that sort of um, that affinity with them if you are freelance as well in that same sort of way. Because you you can you can understand them like, I just can't, I can't deliver this week because I've been, I've, I haven't been doing this for X, Y, and Z. And you think, yep, I totally get you. That's fine. <laughs> yeah. No, absolutely, and and it's it's an interesting world because I mean, quite a number of the people you you've worked with in the indie sphere are writing series, and so mm-hmm. I presume that one of the things you've got to look out for as an editor is longevity mm-hmm. and also continuity. Looking back mm-hmm. at the previous books that you've worked on, making sure that they haven't suddenly given somebody Switched to left-handed or well, yeah, yeah, or, or yeah. taken a leg off or something like that. Which <laughs> people do do sometimes yeah. without realizing it, don't they? they yeah, forget, they're, 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 yeah, exactly. Book one. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's that's something I'm always um, very conscious of because because I work on a number of books. Um, I always have to think, right, OK, it's been X number of months since I did that series. So I've got to make sure I remember that um, DCI Bob or whatever is left handed, has blue eyes and dark hair. And then in the next book, he has suddenly got green eyes and you think, ah, OK. Um, <laughs> but often um as I tend to do sometimes a lot of developmental work there's not as much pressure so like the copy editor we might be picking that up next um but um, when I do do copy editing work it's like right got to concentrate and um especially but I guess 
it's also a privilege of working on a series that you kind of get to know the characters almost as well as the authors. So mm-hmm. you have that, um, you realise certain things will spring up to you when you think, oh, actually, no, that um, such and such had a had a daughter in the previous one who was 16, not 15, and she's now jumped three years or something, but it's only been two and that sort of thing. Um, so it's a very different brain because you side of your brain because you have to kind of um, match up all those details as opposed to the sort of creative process. Um, but having that familiarity with the series is really helpful. And you also fall in love with the characters too. So you um, you want to see what they get up to and um, you're just eager and chomping at the bit saying, when's the next one, next one? <laughs> um, the tricky one is when you join a series halfway through and you're like, oh yeah. Um, so I'm privileged to work with um, Sally Rigby who work, does the Cavendish and Walker series and Sebastian Clifford. Um, and I think I must've joined that when there had been 11 books in there. And I was like, right, wow. got a lot of homework to do. <laughs> <laughs> to make sure I, I make sure everything um, fits together so you, you feel that sense of pressure to make sure you you get it right <laughs> yeah but that's quite that's quite a job I mean do you charge for that time for that I mean, <laughs> what we, or is this do. or is this just pure <laughs> professional standards that you set yourself um I think it depends on the series I think those with Sally's I read a few and then kind of got the gist of them and then I was just I turned to Sally and went I haven't been able to read them all by the deadline. It's the, it's the stuff I need to know for this next book. Yeah. Um, because they, that, like because I notes. think, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I need to, uh, I do actually um, recommend that. So like the series guides and stuff like that to, um, um, I, it's not a service I provide, but some editors do create like a series guide that's basically, this is what has happened in X, Y, Z. And um, this is the details that you need to remember. So that's really useful if you change copy editors, just as a heads up authors who are listening. That's, um, yeah, <laughs> that hadn't occurred to me, but that's a great idea. Yeah. There's I, nothing else you could actually turn that into some, because there's plenty of scammers out there doing the companion to <laughs> such and such series um, <laughs> and, and taking the credit. So yeah, yeah. We, should, we should get on that. Yeah. I want to know what do you wish you prefer development editing or copy editing because I, I I definitely have a preference of the two so I'm curious. Yeah. Um, I like both because one I can focus on the story and then the other one it's more because it's more corrective it's focusing more detailed so rather than big picture it's little picture and I think it's nice to vary the two because otherwise I feel that I might. Um, I don't I want you want to make sure you keep your brain fresh basically so you have a different approach and different jobs and so that's why I love when proofreading comes in because you know it's basically like okay this is basically done so you just have to be um you don't have to look at the big story but you just focus on the details whereas the other one's the big one um but I do like the developmental edit I think more because you have more of that um ability to help the author shape their story in the best possible way and you think I love this idea how are we going to make it even better which I think is the um the privilege of an editor <laughs> yeah it's true i mean do you have a do you have an a, a standard approach when you're looking at a new manuscript it i'm thinking of there are plenty of books out there and i've got most of them in my bookshelf in the, in the bedroom upstairs uh telling you how to structure your novel um whether it be you know something like john york's into the woods which is one or save the cat writes a novel being another yeah. and there are millions of in between uh, do you have a, a particular model that you work to, an act structure, or do you get to 50% into the manuscript and where's the big, you know, big moment that changes yeah. everything? <laughs> um, I tend to, obviously, each story is unique. And so if an author said I've used X, Y and Z as this model, I will kind of keep that in mind. 
Um, but I tend to find that the most common one that fits all of them in some sort of way is the three act structure because it's mm. kind of how um, readers are approaching and you it's good for timing I think if nothing else because especially with commercial fiction when you haven't got all that much leeway before you have to hook the reader and keep them reading yeah. um, I think it's really important to keep that in mind to keep the reader the narrative as tight as possible um, so if I'm getting to like 25% or something like that and going I'm not sure where the inciting incident is yet or something like that. Mm. That's something I kind of, I'll be flagging going, we should be moving into like the thirst for peak now. So um, we're, we're, this is a bit mug, uh, muddy or something. So I would, um, that's how I use as a guide. But mm. I always approach manuscripts as if I was a reader. And I think that's what is, because I know some editors, they'll read the whole thing and they'll go back. Um, but I kind of try and do it. I wouldn't say sometimes I will go back and do different bits but I try and approach it in almost like one go as if I was that reader and this is their experience because obviously that's how your reader is going to experience that particular novel um so um you kind of need to keep that in mind as you go through and then obviously once you go to the end you realize ah that's the foreshadowing that works you'll go back and work into that but that's you have to experience it's like your end it's your end audience so you kind of want to make sure that you have that sort of um test run for want of another word <laughs> yeah i think if if hobeck authors were honest the word that i always use that i'm always asking for more of in oh, crime, jeopardy. jeopardy yeah it's your favorite Je- word <laughs> jeopardy is my favorite word because <laughs> it captures that thing you know where's the where's the jeopardy for this character in this scene and that's what crime thrillers spence and all the other yeah. uh, genres that we deal with, the other one. Um, that's what it needs. You know, you need you need to put, you know, to all characters pretty much through something. Yeah. Um, you need to root for them. Yeah, and you need to challenge mm. them. So uh, well, if yeah. you were, if I were to challenge you to, to come up with the, the, the Rebecca Miller word, <laughs> um, yeah. du jour, uh, what would it be? <laughs> oh, I think it would either be tension, because I swear I write that um, over a million times um, mm-hmm. uh, over for a month um where's the tension where's the build-up of tension um and also about um probably preparation because how the shock moments and the tense moments don't work unless the orders off there unless the reader is positioned properly in the kind of the best possible way that's Um, very well put yeah um or and maybe threat I think that's another one what's the threat what's what's at stake here um Mm. are the other things that I used to I should probably get those on like um shortcut <laughs> to make it much faster you should, maybe should yeah yeah that's but true think, would, say, would, would you be mm-hmm. tempted to write fiction yourself or have you I don't know actually um I would love to write fiction myself um I have ideas I had lots of post-it notes from my previous house move which got lost in my house move which was very bad um so I would love to and I have an idea um but I, I think the problem with being an editor sometimes is that your head is so full of stories, but they're not your stories. Um, so having that headspace to kind of find your own characters and your own plot lines is quite tricky um, because you just everything feeds into what you're thinking. Um, so I think I need some time where I've had that headspace to kind of think, right, I'm not working on anyone else's. Now it's my time. Um, I tried to do NaNoWriMo. Um, that failed drastically I wrote 200 words on the first day I never went back to it um (laughs) in there (laughs) yeah I was thinking I will do it at some point but yes so 
I have ideas and I'd love to write and I'd write to I'd love to do that I mean I have an idea that I might co-write with my um fiance but um what we'll see when that happens I wouldn't I wouldn't anticipate pre-ordering it yet (laughs) okay (laughs) let's just say (laughs) well I mean it's very exciting I think Uh, I'll have to find the right editor too Yes, that's that's the thing. I think, um, yeah, I have to find the right editor. Or, um, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, in terms of the relationships then that you build with your authors, uh, do you feel that there's ever a point where, you know, there's a natural time where you've both taken it as far as you can? Mm-hmm. Does that ever happen? Um, yeah, that has happened. Um, I think, uh, like, as I was actually with um, Simon McLeave, because we worked together on, must have been about nine. Yeah eight or nine books and I think there was a point where it was kind of like um uh we'd we taught each other basically everything that we could kind of know and he had um learned so much he'd come so far in how he's writing and now obviously he's traditionally published by Avon and he's doing so well and I think um I'm very grateful to Simon as well because um he kind of helped me kickstart my business as well because he was um did um so, yeah, so I think that's kind of when you reach that point where you think you. What the lessons that you're teaching are almost similar and you think, yeah. right, you know what, you know what you need to do, but um, onwards, go forth, young Padawan. On the subject of Simon, I mean, yeah. because a lot of other authors and I've, we, we talk about Simon a lot to our authors and saying, look, he's been incredibly prolific and successful, but it's, we're literally talking about what three year period mm. um, since he, since he first committed to writing mm. uh, and in which time he's released what 15 books or something. Yeah. So, um, you know, it, it, to, to many people, it seems absolutely crazy and they can't be in it. And, and they'll also come back with the line you should hear all the time. Well, they mm. can't be any good. Uh, oh, I know. I hate that. that. That's very, that's very so unfair. Isn't how, <laughs> I mean, in terms, of, it's a big commitment for you to be connected to to nine books, which were quick release. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know he released. He had the first three written, and then and then started releasing as he finished. If you know what I mean. But that must have been a heck of a commitment for you too. Yeah um that was a lot of scheduling that was basically like being back at penguin random house going this book needs to be done there this book needs to be done there and mm. when i when we were um so i used the imprint i used to work for was um used to publish james patterson and so obviously he's very prolific unbelievable publishing yeah. schedule so it was basically a bit like that going right we need to book this in this needs to booked in here this in no holidays for you rebecca move that way <laughs> um kind of thing and then no holidays for simon either but yeah so but i think the key to kind of his success is just because he is so determined and so he's worked so hard and I think his screenwriting background allowed him to just write well and write well on first draft if that makes sense Mm. I think that's key because obviously any if you've had the time to redraft and revise you can obviously make it better and better but the quality of his first drafts was so good that they didn't necessarily need a complete revamp or anything like that which sometimes happens when you've got um um authors who are still kind of learning a bit more and I think screen he had that that teaching in screenwriting is um um very very helpful like I've worked on another another a couple of other screenwriters and they all have that similar aspect of the ability to just turn around work really fast because I think that just the deadlines I mean obviously Adrian you worked in the BBC and so mm-hmm. that sort of media um deadlines are just very well they're ludicrous you just have to, you just, yeah exactly exactly they're ludicrous and you just think right and they, when they've learned to adapt to that, that means that they can harness that as a skill, I think, is um, really useful. Um, I don't have that skill. Um, 
<laughs> I wish I could write that fast um, and, and work to that quickly. But um, I think it's a great, great um, skill to have if you are, especially working into that model of quick release um, publishing. Yeah. I don't think that's necessarily the only way to succeed in publishing with like the quick release stuff, but um, I think it's a very useful way to gain a lot of um, um, ground to begin with. So, yeah, yeah I think strategy well, that's well, well for him. Well, I think, you know, it's about momentum, isn't it? And mm. uh, I think that with so much noise out there and so many books out there, that, you know, if you don't release quickly, then you're quickly forgotten. Yeah. Um, unless your book is absolutely staggering and everyone's waiting like, um, you know, to kill a mockingbird. Like Donna Tart. Yeah, she did yeah. kill a mockingbird and wait 50 years for <laughs> oh, yeah. book two, which and turns then, out not to be a bit, a bit of a clunker. Who's the other one? Um, I am Pilgrim. TNT yes, well, that's the I'm most famous. I'm still waiting for that. It's coming though, isn't it? Well, no, no. I mean, who said it was? Well, so. well no, no. The, 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 let's just put this in context. So, I am Pilgrim. Um, is that Terry? Terry Hayes. Terry Hayes. That's right. I was going to say Gray, but Terry Hayes. Right. Again, a screenwriter before, then writes this amazing novel, and it's the best thriller I've read outside of a Hobeck book. <laughs> I hate uh, to I say that. Put that caveat. But I, I absolutely adored it. Um, and it's been, what, 12 years and counting since that came out? Yeah. And what they do, the publishers, is that they just keep shifting the pre- pre-order date. And I don't know if it's ever going to get finished. It sounds like, I mean, he must be going through unbelievable mental torment. Maybe they need to do a Douglas Adams on him and lock him in a hotel room. Maybe. Maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe. I mean, there's always the, like... There's that the curse of the second book, isn't there, where people feel sure mm. of the first book and they think, oh, no, it's never going to be good as the second. And I don't want to release it if it's not as good. So maybe mm. he's feeling a bit of that. I don't know. But um, yeah, come on, Terry. <laughs> Do you, when you're one of the areas of job satisfaction I suspect you get mm. is when you're working with an author over a series of books is to see their craft improve. So when it, the next manuscript lands, mm-hmm. they've picked up and they've squirreled away the things that you were suggesting and it's mm-hmm. done the first mm-hmm. you don't have to come back to it mm-hmm. that must be a great you know pleasure yeah that's a great pleasure I think that's I think that's probably the best thing about working being an editor is being able to see how your authors improve and how they learn those lessons and I guess there's a great irony in being an editor that um, I'm sure Rebecca might actually appreciate is that um, your job the best, the mark of success of an editor is that you basically worked yourself out of a job um, <laughs> because by the end of it, your authors are so um, polished and stuff. They don't really need you. And you're sort of going, oh, well, that was a foolish business strategy. Um, but, <laughs> but I think that's the ultimate reward, really, if that makes sense, to see how well authors have kind of gone from um like just starting out and kind of learning how to write in some ways to being very accomplished and knowing their style how they want to write and being confident with that as well um which is I mean that's the ultimate reward really to see how they do and then I mean if there's if they do become a a big success as well that's brilliant but obviously people write for different reasons so um that's that's more second to me if that makes sense Mm. Mm. I mean we feel that with our authors don't we well that's what we're we're investing in especially first-time authors we're thinking right when we get to book five <laughs> we're going to have Ian Rankin on our hands um, but you know fingers crossed anyway yeah. but that, that's the aspiration that's the that's the dream and that's the optimism which you have to approach you know when you when you sign up but I mean you you must be at a position now 
well established in your and and with people like Simon crediting you so much with with um, the influence you've had on their careers. Are you in a position now to just turn projects down, or are you still you know whatever comes along gets signed up? Um, I think with being self-employed and freelance, it's always that um, kind of uh worry about work and i think my for the current economic um Mm. there's there is a there always always that slight worry of thinking as much as everyone loves books like obviously it's not going to be it's not priority when you have to pay your heating and um buy your grocery bills so obviously there's that always in the back of my mind but i do find i can be a bit more discerning in what sort of projects i want to take on so i want to take on ones that i feel I can really add the best possible um effect to particular books and and obviously um also there'll be some books where I think it's just not quite suited to me um so or it might just be ones that I think actually you might need someone who is more of a book coach as opposed to an editor so someone yes. to help you actually write and learn how to write from scratch effectively which is not something that I currently do um so I think sometimes it depends on different projects but I think yeah so being able to it's 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 a nice feeling to have but I am I'm not going to rest upon any laurels um, no. <laughs> um, to, yeah. to the many authors listening to this yeah um from your perspective what could they do more of in terms of preparing their manuscripts before they reach you would you think um, is there a is there a general sort of theme here in terms of the, you know, things that 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 frustrate you perhaps and you think oh if only they you know got the spell checker out or <laughs> run it through grammarly or something i don't know <laughs> um i don't mind so much about the spell check and grammarly especially if i'm doing um uh like sort of developmental ideas. i mean it's nice if you think if you think you would that you are sending this off and you as an author you think this is the first person who's going to read my manuscript I think it's just polite um to run it through spell check and grammarly also I think it's to their advantage um because obviously if I'm tripping over basic grammar questions I'm not going to be able to see the bigger question and I'll be like commenting going um I know you haven't had this copy edited yet but as a reader this is quite hard to get into and I can't tell whether it's hard because of the story or because of the the actual kind of the writing needs more um corrective um work um so that's that but I think (laughs) on a on a more practical level I think one of the things I would love authors to do um and um is to just email me earlier (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> to get in touch earlier it's like this I'm 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 always super excited when authors come to me going I've finished my draft I'm so excited I want to start editing it um I've done a second draft and I'm I'm ready um so, oh that's great so when are you thinking of doing um can you start next week I'm like, um no um, <laughs> because I have other authors that I have to work with and obviously with lots of series authors they're kind of programmed in and yeah. um I have to I have my loyalty to them so they obviously take priority and trying to fit people around the schedule and I think also I think it's also a benefit to particular authors because if you're in a hurry to edit I think sometimes you might need to take a step back and so for yeah. example when authors come to me and said right I finished my first draft please edit this for me and going I can do but if you go away for a month don't look at it and then do it yourself it's like your own first edit when mm. you then come to me, um, 
our work together will be so much more productive for you because I won't be picking up what I call the clangers um, that you might have picked up the first time around. And then obviously that's um, more value for money for um, the authors as well, because I appreciate editing isn't the cheapest of endeavors. Um, but it also means that as a writer, you learn your craft as well, because you are almost self-teaching in another way. Yes. You realise, oh, you're just too close to it the first time round, and you think, okay, right, now I can see why that doesn't work, or we've been taking um, too long to do between two plot pivots and that sort of thing. So you think, okay, yeah. And then rather than me having to tell you that, I can tell you something else that you might not have thought about later on. Mm-hmm. Rather than the basics, yeah. yeah that, no, that's, that's that's interesting. And I noticed on your website, you know, you have sort of a recommendations for audiobooks in terms of um is it monkey tree or monkey, monkey puzzle audio. monkey nut sorry I got <laughs> monkey, it. Tree, monkey puzzle monkey nut <laughs> well we got there eventually uh audio anyway i mean yeah, something that i have a great yeah. passion for is recording audio um so are you conscious when you're working through a manuscript uh at the well the thing i always have an, an issue is is um attribute attribute attribution <laughs> um i'm trying to come up for a phrase for it but it which is um I, I don't know if you've noticed this but people who read on writing by stephen king and his you know pages of just say he said she said mm. a, a lot mm. um that becomes a big drag when you're a narrator frankly mm. and then there's the other way which is to not no, no, to have a two-hander and not put a single attribution in so you've no idea when you're underrating it back on you like that was that one that was that one <laughs> yeah and yeah. if it's if it's if it's typeset incorrectly you you really no idea who's speaking <laughs> um do, do you have a, a, a sort of house rules on that or does it just depend on the author I think it depends on the author it depends on the manuscript itself so obviously it's first person you can kind of um you it's easier to kind of read who's speaking yeah you have that author the um character's voice is easier um but I think I agree with the Stephen King in a way with the whole he said she said because after a while on the page obviously it just blends in together and you know who yes just like um flags really but I appreciate that in audio and I mean I don't know whether um I, I don't know enough, enough about audio I don't think to see whether people would take out the he sheds he blah, he said she said yeah he said she said um to make it flow a bit better but um I think if it starts when you're reading through it and if it starts flagging in your head I think having too many synonyms for he said she said and shouted and stuff yeah. is more funky in a way if that makes sense so you kind of need to see how it flows I mean it's more of a problem when there's more than three more than two people in a conversation I think that's where you have to be most delicate about it and kind of point out to make sure you don't have back and forth dialogue, but also have enough um, tag tags as well to kind of um, make sure that we, that's um, that's what I've, I've put my teeth back in. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, that's kind of what I tell my authors a lot that you have to remember the ease of the reading experience is really important as well. Yeah, so you absolutely. might want to you demonstrate that you've got this wonderful vocabulary and that they are like, this is the perfect word for that particular situation. But if the readers are stumbling over all these sort of things, you think, okay, well, as you say, the kill your darlings aspect, you might have to get rid of that just because you want your reader to enjoy yeah. Reading and indeed, an East End gangster saying forsooth. Yes. Um. <laughs> yeah, I've had that. I've I've had that. Um, I've been working with a couple of um people who work within the legal kind of lawyer sort mm. of 
around recently and they've um it's it was a psychological thriller and it was absolutely brilliant except for everyone was talking like they were in a courtroom but yeah. when they weren't in the courtroom and I was like I, I I know this is the world that you come from and it's brilliant and the, I I admire how clever you are um but these guys are just having lunch so that's not how they'd be chatting and you have to yeah. kind of think of that and think well you can save that for later and then um making sure that the register is appropriate and then using maybe those longer words to kind of demonstrate power struggles later on and power mm. levels of power in dialogue so um yes <laughs> that, that's fascinating listen yeah. we're, we're, we're getting to the point now where well you were talking about uh two two-handed conversations and now we've got a three-hander because we've got <gasps> cat the cats come back um <laughs> <laughs> come on aki give us some meow or a pearl do anyway uh it's time for i'm gonna do the voice now but no no i'm sorry about that but you know we knew it was coming here we go rebecca's random question as always i thought of this today i always think of the questions on the day have you ever cheated at a board game have i ever cheated at a board game well I'd like to say I probably have because I'd be a very cool badass, but I don't think I have. Really? <laughs> Simply because I am um, really, really bad at board games. <laughs> I always, always lose. And I think the reason why is because I'm not I, I'm, I'm not very good at cheating. Um, <laughs> because I'm not witty enough or clever enough to kind of think, right, how do I do that? Um, maybe I should just, um, yeah. I also seem to always make tea at the wrong time in Monopoly. And then you oh yeah, no, your, that's, that's your money a fake pile error. is somewhat smaller, and I just not I'm, I'm just not concentrating enough. Um. <laughs> yeah, you come back and find you know you've landed on six hotels and that's yeah, it, you're wiped out. Oh, yeah, your exactly. got loads of money suddenly, and you think, how <laughs> did that happen? Yeah. Oh, well, it's guess, funny you mentioned guess... Monopoly because I do cheat at Monopoly. I have done in the past. Yeah, and that was always to be the banker. Yeah, because you can yeah. slide you secrete money, don't that's you? Slide five hundred pounds through, you know, place it between your knees or something, and, and you know. True. Yeah, so I've done yeah. that in the past. I, I once treated a tri- treated tri- tri- cheated a Trivial Pursuit. Yeah. So I was playing with two other people, and one of them went to the toilet, and the other two of us said, "Right, let's read all the next ten cards, <laughs> memorize the answers." And we did. <laughs> yeah, and they came back from the toilet. They weren't gone that long, and they were just. When we did, we we got you know we did really well, and they were like, "Wow, <laughs> they didn't think we'd cheat because you know, exactly, well, exactly." Exactly. Well, I mean, I must admit, I haven't called rent. No, I like I have. I haven't acknowledged rent and on 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 the Monopoly board a couple of times. Does that? Happen? <laughs> you get that I don't know. That makes me sound really boring and very vanilla, but you know. <laughs> oh, I, get all my, I get all my um, naughty, um, bad crime stuff from my books. There we go. I do I, enough of that all day. <laughs> I've actually cheated at cheat. You know the card game cheat. Oh yeah. <laughs> so you know, if you say four queens. I've actually put about 10 cards, but just made it look like there's only four cards and gone, four queens. <laughs> You're evil. But yeah. I think my favourite cheat that, that I've done is actually your eldest boy is back from university. He's upstairs at the moment. Mm-hmm. And uh, when we, he started getting into watching University Challenge with us. Oh. and at the, I remember this. Right. And so what I did, we do is we we time shifted it. So we, we it's on a Monday night normally. We'd watch it on repeat on a Tuesday. Because I've already watched the episode before and memorized all the answers <laughs> um i did it about three weeks running 
and, and pretty much got everything right, didn't I? And, and, it, he, and he boasts as well. He goes, "My God, twenty-two. Well, no, that's seventy-seven <laughs> there. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> got them all and right because he went to posh school. I think he, he's really clever. Yeah, you know about Greek mythology. Well, that's the thing and, about posh school is that it, it, it's it's number one thing that it does for you is that it makes people think you're intelligent just because you've got a posh accent. Yeah. Um, the, the fact that I was daydreaming, dawdling, um, and getting you know loads of sides, as we used to call it, which was you know sides. Well, sides was was the same as lines, but you know, oh, so yeah, we, we used to... to get sides, which was four sides of A4 paper, narrow lined, la la la. Mm-hmm. And the, the worst one I ever got was you got to write four sides on the sex life of, of a German ER verb or something like that. Okay. Uh, <laughs> and no repetition. So I mean it oh, was wow. just just a nightmare. Um, <laughs> anyway. That that's sounds me. like a very intriguing writing exercise. <laughs> it certainly made me a creative like writer, me. that's for sure. Did, yeah. I once had to write 100 times, I must not forget my PE kit. Have you ever forgotten your PE kit? Ever? Oh, loads of times. Oh, <laughs> since. <laughs> Didn't stop me. No. I'm still rubbish at remembering a PE kit. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, look, we'll, we'll draw this to, to, to a close. Rebecca, it's so great to speak to you. And, um, you know, you have touched the lives of many, many, many people that we we have spoken to on this program before and it's, it's great to speak to you and to get your perspective on it because they've all all of them have given you huge credit for their success and their ongoing passion for writing so for that we thank you uh where can people find you online if they wish um, to you know know more and uh, perhaps use your services yeah um so well i just first i want to say thank you very both um both of you for having me on um and also thank you to my lovely authors for their lovely testimonials because (laughs) um the only reason why i could keep doing what i do is because i have such lovely authors that i work with um and they cheer me up no end um and I could list them all now, but um, we'd be here a while. Um, but no, so if you people want to um, find me, um, the, probably the best way is to go onto my website, um, which is just um, RebeccaMillerEditorial.com. Um, it's Miller with an A-R. Um, <laughs> I was going to say, yeah. Yeah, um, lots of that, that's, that's uh, the bane of my life. Everyone gets that wrong. Um, and or if not I am on social media I am probably most active on Instagram um, as opposed to the other ones so that's also just Rebecca at at Rebecca Miller editorial Um, and yeah so I'd love to chat to people and um, yeah hear hear all the amazing stories that people are writing and see how we can can make them even better (laughs) absolutely well thank you so much it's been you know really really instructive and, and a real pleasure to speak to you thank you Thank you very much, and thank you for having me. And the cat is still here. She is. She is indeed. As you can hear. (laughs) This is where she gets her nickname Geiger Cat from. Oh, we do call her Geiger Cat, yeah. Uh, When she's purring this loudly, it's like a Geiger having your own Geiger counter. Let's hope we never need to use one for real. Anyway, uh, so two books launched this week. Yep. You also have in 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 your working life, you do, as we've explained, freelance work for other publishers, and you've I got do. a big meeting tomorrow. So you're off to well, actually, in today, Banbury, we, of all yeah, places. Yeah, so you're heading to, towards Oxford, uh, which is you know a, a big tradition of the year for you, where you meet up with Every your fellow November editors. November we do it. So the first meeting's in Banbury. Mm-hmm. I'm having pizza for lunch, and then I'm hop, hopping over to Oxford for another meeting mm. <laughs> before coming home. Mm. Absolutely. So it's going to be a busy one. We have been busy using our new Amazon functionality. 
I mean, I, I have knocked Amazon religiously for the last two or three weeks, but they have now put into operation attribution links which allow us to track the impact of all social media, Facebook campaigns, uh, you name it, emails. We can now track whether they actually lead to any sales, and uh, we're busy shipping those codes out to our authors who can now post and find out whether they've had an impact on their own sales. So that's been a, a new thing, and uh, it's it's a big step forward, I think, for the indie publishing community, really. Yeah, it's going to make a, a massive difference because I will be able to tell if I tweet about um, the Unfamily, for example, I will see exactly how many clicks onto the website mm. from that tweet. Yeah, so we're excited by that new development. That's that's terrific. Um, and there have been one or two other little bits and bobs that they've thrown in there as well, which make things a little life a little easier. Uh, but all these things are hugely important. But it still boils down to this. You know, it's nice to know, it would be nice to know, that we, when we say we're going to publish it, but we do publish it uh, and don't get messed about. But uh, increasingly, piracy is a big problem, as we've discussed on the show. Uh, we've just got back. We ought to just mention that we're recording this literally seconds after we got through the door. We decided that the day, Sunday, would be a day off. Now, you haven't had a day off. Since Christmas. <laughs> since Christmas last year, frankly. And so I decided I'd book us into a spa. And we've just been to Crew Hall, which uh, is, strangely enough, outside Crew. It's a Jacobean mansion. It's quite something. And uh, we had a spa day. And, and actually, we didn't know what to do with ourselves because I was banned from my phone. You were banned from your laptop. When you say that, I read about 200 pages of a book. So I knew what to do with no, myself. I did a bit of reading. <laughs> I did a bit of reading. We, have, we had massages I and all that stuff. I 30 lengths. Yeah. I, I walked up and down the pool a lot which actually is more exhausting than you might imagine. My swimming is not great. And we come back feeling sort of blissed out, but also quite tired. Yes, which is expected. You clo you've slowed your brain down, so of course you're yeah. going to be tired. So, yeah, I don't know if we've been feeling sort of, or come across as being a bit dopey or a bit, <laughs> uh, bit hippie-ish or something like that. We've uh, been, you know, surrounded by aromatherapy oils and all sorts of things. Uh, I took an ice shower uh, no less at, at, at one point after I'd been in the steam room all of that nonsense you don't need to th have mental images of me coming out of this thing I looked puce <laughs> I well I'd say you looked alarmed yeah <laughs> it was a bit like that yeah but you know we need to put something back into ourselves occasionally and it's been blissful to actually just not just not be slaving away particularly for you at your desk and at the uh, the computer so uh busy busy times as we build up towards christmas and of course show number 100 of the hopgars book show the other thing i wanted to mention before i repeat who our guest is for next week is that we've just uh this week or a few days ago our appearance on philippa's quick books podcast that's right yes. was published um, uh, in conjunction with karen sullivan from Arenda books which i know we've mentioned a number of times on the on the podcast so check that out it's a brilliant podcast in itself with book reviews at the beginning and then the joint interview which goes on it's quite a long interview that's worth but, it though oh boy yeah well we had a great opportunity to just share really yeah. what it's like to run this company and to hear from someone who's been around a bit longer than us and had some great success at the beginning and still has a great success but at the same time expresses how difficult it is at the moment so we learned a lot from that 
but it's a great interview. So that's Philippa's Quick Books, if you um, uh, podcast, and it's just a great podcast anyway. Mm. So subscribe to that, please, because you'll get a lot out of it. And uh, we uh, we met up for coffee with Philippa. We did because we live in the same county. We do. We do pretty much. Well, actually, not strictly, but pretty much. So yeah. we did meet for, meet for coffee, and the reason was that um, she's going to be reviewing cooking the books for her Christmas special. And the books arrived on the day she was recording. So the only way to get a book to her was to meet her halfway in what I call Shropshire's armpit, Telford Shopping Centre. <laughs> what glamour. What glamour. <laughs> anyway, um, so, yeah, that's worth checking out. And, uh, as, you know, as we share insights and, and the hopes and fears of running a, a publishing house, it's all there. Um, I listened back to it as I drove over. Uh, the other day across the country and uh, i was very proud of it actually it's interesting when you're not hosting it just how you come across when you're a guest it's, uh, it was fascinating anyway as we say next week's guest is the wonderful ellie griffiths and uh, we're so excited to to have her on our hundredth show I, it's absolutely staggering to think we're on the verge of a hundredth show i can't believe we've been doing this a hundred times yeah i mean there are times when you have to drag me to the microphone Yes. And I'm not in the mood to do it. And there have been a number of occasions where we've had we started recording, and I get grumpy. Actually, I, this one. Yeah, actually, they I don't st- know that because they won't no, hear. No, I stopped it after 27 <laughs> seconds and said, no. "Doesn't sound right. Let's start again." Yeah, let's start again. I'm I'm I'm, I'm very grumpy when I get to the podcast um, at times. I, I'm, I don't know what it is that keeps making me behave like that. But anyway, I have. Um, over the over the hundred shows, there have been occasions. It's been blissful. It's really flowed. We have fallen out. We have. We have had big rows about mm. it. So we do put a lot of passion <laughs> and energy into this, and we're so grateful to all of you who've supported us for those last ninety nine shows, including this one, yeah, and our hundredth next week. And we'll continue to do so. We've got some ambitious plans. We hope for our New Year's program, which we I'm do. I'm penciling in as the. Uh, our Hobney Monet, sorry, Hob Monet um, celebrations. Um, anyway, we're, we're trying to put that together, yes, but we'll worry about that after we've got the hundredth done. Yes. So join us again for our next show with Ellie Griffiths. Thank you again for joining us this week. I've been Adrian Hobart. I've been Rebecca Collins. Together, we've been Hobart Books and the Hobcast Book Show, and this, of course, is Aki the, the cat. legendary Geiger Cat. And all we wish to... Well, what do you want to say, Aki? Do you want to wish anybody anything? She probably wants to say, feed me. She tried to bite me in a moment ago. Anyway, let's uh, let's leave it with Aki. Uh, and uh, we wish you a wonderful and... Creative. ...week. Bye-bye. You've been listening to The Hobcast from Hobeck Books with Adrian Hobart and Rebecca Collins. You can find the show notes at our website, www.hobeck.net. You can also use the exclusive Hobcast discount code for any of the products at our Hobeck online store. Just enter the code HOBCAST20 for a 20% discount. Don't forget to subscribe to the Hobcast and feel free to contact us with any feedback. Until next time, remember our motto, Trad Values, Indie Spirit. Indie Spirit.